Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome, everyone, to Season 4 of the Benefits Executive Roundtable Podcast. I really can't believe it's already our fourth season and we're starting this up again. And better yet, we're starting it with one of our most popular podcast guests, Marilyn Monahan of Monahan Law Office. Welcome, Marilyn. Hello, Dorothy, and hello to everyone who's listening. Thanks very much for inviting me, Dorothy. It's always great to be here to talk with you about the latest developments and benefits. Oh, you're very much welcome, Marilyn. Uh, as you know, this summer has been a crazy time as far as benefits and health insurance and related legislation and regulations and Supreme Court decisions and everything else. And it's really been a whirlwind of new information. In fact, our September 21st Lunch and Learn program will be offered both in person in Orange County, California, and available in a hybrid fashion on Zoom webinar as a live stream. And Marilyn and I are going to be digging into the details on all of this stuff that we're going to be talking about today and next week from 10 a.m. to 2 15 Pacific time. But in the meantime, just to give you a brief sampling of some of the important information that we're going to be talking about on September 21st, I invited Marilyn to be my first guest for season four. What do you think, Marilyn? Have you been as busy as I have this summer? Yes. Whirlwind is just the right word. There's a lot going on, but I'm looking forward to highlighting for our listeners some of the most important action items they should be adding to their to-do list. Great. Well, we have a lot to cover to start this season, and because there's so much to cover, uh, Marilyn's agreed to be with us for both Episode 1 and Episode 2 because we know we'll talk way too long uh, if we try to do this in one episode, and that'll get kind of tedious, I think, for the listeners. So we're going to go ahead and split that into two so that we can cover you know, a lot of the important information that we think that employers need to know. So let's dive into some of this. Let's first briefly talk about leave laws and benefits and how they relate. Now, I know that each of these topics we talk about, we could go on, you could go on particularly for quite a bit of time on. So we're just going to touch on them today because there's a, a way too much in details for a podcast. Again, we're going to leave that for September 21st for the Lunch and Learn. So let's touch on some of the most important things that employers, particularly HR departments, need to understand about leave laws and benefits and how they interrelate. So let's start with the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act, FMLA. When and who does FMLA apply to and what benefits must be offered during an FMLA leave? A private employer is subject to FMLA if it has 50 or more employees, and for this purpose, part-time employees are also counted. A government employer is subject to the FMLA regardless of size. An employee is eligible for FMLA if the employee has, in the past 12 months, worked 1,250 or more hours. In addition, the employee is employed at a work site where 50 or more employees are employed within 75 miles of that work site. Finally, the employee must ask for leave for a qualifying reason, such as the serious health condition of the employee or certain family members of the employee. Okay, great. That's a nice summary. I appreciate that. So who pays for the benefits during uh, an FMLA leave? This is an important question because the FMLA is not just about offering the leave time to employees. It's also about making certain that they uh, maintain their benefits that they are entitled to while they're out on leave. So for the duration of the FMLA-approved leave, which would be up to 12 weeks, the employer must maintain group health benefits on the same terms and conditions as coverage would have been provided if the employee was continuously employed. That means the employer pays its share of the cost of coverage and the employee can be asked to pay his or her share. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, here in California, we also have the California Family Rights Act, CFRA. When does CFRA apply and what benefits have to be offered during a CFRA leave? Well, CIFRA has changed a lot in the last couple of years due to some amendments by the legislature. Far more employers are now subject to CIFRA than was the case just a couple of years ago. Okay, and again, who pays for the benefits when somebody's out on a CIFRA leave? The same rules apply that apply to FMLA. The employer pays its portion and the employee pays his or her portion. Okay, great. So what are the biggest differences between FMLA and CIFRA in brief? 
Well, there have always been a few differences between CIFRA and FMLA, but with the legislative changes that have been made in the last couple of years, there are far more differences. Um, but the biggest are probably that CIFRA now applies to private employers with five or more employees. It used to be 50 or more, just like under FMLA. And under CIFRA, the categories of individuals for whom you can take leave if they have a serious health condition is much more extensive. So those categories include the employee, spouse, registered domestic partner, child, parent, sibling, grandparent, grandchild, or parent-in-law. And in addition, the definition of child has been expanded. So it now includes an adult uh, dependent as well as the children of domestic partners. Okay, thank you very much. We also have the pregnancy disability leave. What's this all about and when does it apply and what benefits must be offered? Well, PDL, like CIFRA, applies to employers with five or more employees and government employers of any size. Unlike CIFRA, there is no length of service requirement, so employees are immediately eligible if they otherwise qualify. In other words, an employee can be hired on Friday and by Monday they can be eligible for PDL leave. Under PDL, an employee can take up to four months or uh, 17 and a third weeks of unpaid leave if they are disabled by pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions. So at 17 and a third weeks, really, what are they, are they a number of days, or how does that, how does that work? It's actually 17 and a third weeks. They actually get that specific in the regulations. Wow. I don't know why. I don't know what the history of that is, but they do, in fact, get that specific. Wow. <laughs> I was not aware of that, so I just learned something new today. So who pays for benefits uh, during PDL? Well, this will start to sound familiar. Just like under FMLA and CIFRA, the employer pays its share, but the employee can be asked to pay his or her share. And when I say the employer pays its share and the employee pays his or her share, what I'm referring to is it's basically the same structure that was in place on the day before the employee went out on leave. So if the employer pays $400 a month and the employee pays $100 a month uh, for active employees, that same uh, structure applies when they go out on leave. I want to provide a few more details about the benefits that the employer has to provide when someone goes out on leave, whether it's FMLA, CIFRA, or PDL. When I say group health benefits, in that definition, I'm also including coverage such as dental and vision coverage. The employee may be covered by other plans offered by the employer on the day before they go out on leave. So in that case, the general rule is the employee can maintain those other benefits to the same extent the employee would be allowed to do so if they went out on a non-statutory leave um, offered by the employer. So a leave other than FMLA, CIFRA, or PDL. Another key point to keep in mind about benefits is the employee must be reinstated to their benefits when they return from leave. So even if they decided not to maintain group health or one of their other types of benefit options that they had previously elected, if they decide not to maintain them during the leave, they must still be reinstated to those benefits once they return to work. Okay. Thank you for all that information. I appreciate that. And I know we're going to cover a lot more of this on September 21st. We're only touching on this today. Uh, so let's shift a bit to other legislative and regulatory matters uh, that are important to employers and HR departments right now. First, let's look back at what we talked about a few times on this podcast over the past couple of years, transparency and coverage rule and CAA compliance. The TIC final rule um, has public disclosure requirements, including machine-readable file disclosures. And I know you and I have worked with a lot of this information with some of my clients over the last few months. Can you give us a brief overview of what needs to be disclosed and when? Yes. So the machine-readable files must include in-network provider rates and out-of-network allowed amounts for all covered items and services covered by the plan. The reality is that once these files are prepared, they are very extensive. They are very large, cumbersome files. And even though there is a plain language requirement built into the regulations, these files are not really going to be very accessible or user-friendly for laypersons. 
Instead, the self-service tools, which has a later effective date and which we'll probably, I suspect, talk about next, is more likely to provide usable information to participants and beneficiaries. It's important to know that the machine-readable files must be publicly posted and anyone can access them. Therefore, you cannot require a password or place other restrictions on access. Thank you very much. And again, we're going to get into more of this on September 21st for sure. A lot of folks thought this was delayed indefinitely, but it wasn't. Uh, Many of the provisions that went into effect started July 1st, 2022. Can you walk us through who has to comply beginning July 1 and how renewal dates after July 1, 2022, how those employers need to comply? The effective date was pushed back, but it is now in effect for many plans. So the way uh, the effective dates now work is those two machine-readable files I was talking about must be posted beginning on July 1, 2022 for plan years beginning on or after January 1, 2022. So, for example, if you have a calendar year plan that... um, started on January 1, 2022, you would have had to get those machine-readable files posted by July 1, 2022. If you have a March 1 plan year start date, again, those should have been posted by July 1. On the other hand, if you have a plan date, uh, a plan year that starts later in the year, you might have a little extra time. So, for example, if you've got a December 1 Plan year start date, you don't have to post the machine-readable files until December 1, 2022. Well, let me ask you this. Grandfathered plans, there are some grandfathered plans out there under the ACA. Uh, those don't necessarily need to comply with this, correct? That is correct. Grandfathered plans do not have to comply with the TIC final rule, and that means they do not have to comply with machine-readable file requirement. Now, things are a little different when we get to the other half of the TIC final rule, the self-service tool, and um, I think we've got that on our list to talk about next. Yeah, and just as a little bit of an FYI, what we did with our clients that were grandfathered, because we do have some self-funded clients that are grandfathered and some fully insured clients, but particularly our self-funded clients, what we did was uh, we had them document their file uh, that they are grandfathered and therefore they're not complying uh, with this particular machine-readable file requirement under the TIC because they're grandfathered. But if and when those regulations are merged uh, in the future and they say that they will need to, then they will comply at that time. Would you recommend something like that be done? Yes, they should. All employers who um, uh, purport to be grandfathered should keep adequate records to establish their grandfather status for purposes of the TIC final rule, as well as for purposes of all the other provisions of the ACA that they are not required to conform to because of their grandfather status. Thank you. Now, there are requirements for written agreements, written contracts between employers and the vendors that are actually providing the disclosures. Can you walk us through what types of contracts employers will need to have in place uh, with who and what types of vendors? Absolutely. So one of the provisions that they included in the TIC final rule regarding both the machine-readable files as well as the self-service tool that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes, is that um, if an employer intends to comply with the machine-readable file mandate by outsourcing the work to a third party, whether that's their insurance carrier or whether that's their TPA, what they have to do is enter into a written agreement with that third party. And I suspect that 99.9% of employers will outsource this work. So the obligation is to enter into a written agreement with the third party. And if you have a fully insured plan and you enter into a written agreement with your carrier to provide the machine-readable files to uh, generate them and to post them, and then the carrier fails to do so, any potential consequences, such as penalties, will fall on the carrier. Now, it's a little different in the case of a self-funded plan. You're still obligated to enter into a written agreement. However, if the third party you contract with fails to follow through, then the employer does still remain responsible for compliance and could still be responsible for any penalties that might apply. And therefore, it's very important for the employer to look at the terms of the contract they enter into 
with the third party and make certain that the employer is adequately protected. Yes, thank you. And it sounds like the self-funded clients are definitely going to have a lot more work to do uh, in the future regarding all of these types of things. And we'll talk more about that as we go through this. But in general, it sounds like self-funded groups will definitely have more to do. Uh, Would you agree? Yes, they definitely will. And in this uh, challenge that they're facing with regard to compliance with the TIC final rule, as well as the Consolidated Appropriations Act, the CAA, they're going to have to partner with their um, outside vendors, their consultants and TPAs um, and uh, other parties that provide services to the plan will be essential partners to um, helping the employer with their compliance obligations under these new rules. Right. Thank you very much. I just wanted to make sure that people were aware of that. People like the pharmacy benefit managers, people like networks, um, RBP vendors and things like that are going to have a lot to do with all this as as time goes on and and all of these things go into effect. So we'll be talking more about that, I know. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about the TIC final rule as it relates to the online self-service tool and the CAA price comparison tool. You mentioned this earlier. Of course, you knew we were going to probably come back to this. So (laughs) can you tell us, you can't talk about one without talking about the other one, right? Um, Exactly. Yeah. So can you tell us in brief what has to be disclosed and when? Yes. So I did allude to this earlier because as you said, you can't talk about one without the other because there were essentially two parts to the TIC final rule. There was the public disclosure portion, which are the two machine readable files we talked about. And then there is the, we'll call it private disclosure, um, that will be uh, just for participants and beneficiaries. And that's what we're calling the online self-service tool. So that's the other part of the TIC final rule. And interestingly, shortly after the TIC final rule came out, um, uh the president signed the Consolidated Appropriations Act 2021, and or otherwise referred to as the CAA. And the CAA also had a self-service tool built into it. And that self-service tool in the CAA is very similar to the TIC final rule. Now, there's one area where the two do not overlap. And that is the fact that the CAA self-service tool also requires a telephone component where people can call up and get the same information. But for the other portions of it, it's very much the same. What the regulators are doing right now is they are looking at the CAA language and the TIC final rule and trying to confirm that if you comply with the TIC final rule, you will simultaneously meet the requirements of the CAA. And once they make that determination, they will also make a determination as to whether or not they have to issue further regulatory guidance or if we're good to go if we just follow all of the rules in the TIC final rule. Now, to break down what the CAA and the TIC final rule require with regard to the price comparison tool or the online self-service tool, it goes by different, slightly different names, is that under both, the plan must first post the cost for 500 shoppable services um, as of the first day of the plan year on or after January 1, 2023. So, for example, if you have a calendar year plan as of January 1, 2023, you must make available to your participants and beneficiaries the costs for 500 shoppable services covered by your plan. Now, the government has identified what those 500 shoppable services are. You don't get to pick and choose. So, after you make After you satisfy that compliance obligation, you then have another year to then post all the rest of the covered items and services that are covered by your plan. Um, And so that deadline hits with regard to the start of your plan year beginning on or after January 1, 2024. Okay. I think this is going to be very confusing for employers because they have two different sets of rules under the TIC and the CAA. Some of the items overlap, some do not. Some of them, some of them they'll be, uh, they can waive, um, you know, certain requirements like the TIC uh, and the grandfather plans being able to waive the machine readable files, but they're not going to be able to, you know, stay away from the 500 shoppable services. January 1, 2023 is not that far away. It's only a few months away. And I think it's really important that we uh, really hit on this 
for everyone out there that's listening that, you know, this is something that you need to be working on with your vendors today. This is something you can't wait until December 15th to think about. Uh, you need to have your ducks in a row and talk to your vendors and see who's going to be doing this, who's going to be offering this for you. Uh, is it your third-party administrator? Is it your insurance company? Is it, you know, how are they getting information from various vendors? Um, and this is something you need to work on now and you can't wait, correct? I absolutely agree with that. And even though I mentioned that they are looking into whether they might have to issue further regulatory guidance, do not interpret that to mean that you can sit and wait for that guidance to come out. You should proceed as as you indicated, Dorothy, um, with the idea that the TIC final rules provisions on um, the self-service tools should be implemented on a timely basis. So you should be working on that now with the understanding that they could tweak things a little bit later. Um, but um, in the meantime, it's full steam ahead. Thank you very much. I just want to make sure that everybody was aware of that and they didn't think that they, that they had a lot of time that they could sit and just, since it's not final yet, since they haven't combined the two, that they can sit there and do nothing. That's, that's not an option at this point. Exactly. Uh, right. So this also requires written agreements, uh, which vary depending on whether the employer is fully insured or self-funded. Can you break this down for us also? Yes. The rules are essentially the same for the self-service tool as they were for the machine-readable files. Whether fully insured or self-funded, the employer must have a written agreement with any third party, whether it's their insurance carrier or their TPA, who provides the self-service tool. So what about hospital price transparency? How does that fit into all of this? The hospital price transparency rules are separate, except to the extent that their existence uh, emphasizes the government's ongoing interest in the whole concept of transparency. You'll notice that even though we haven't emphasized that word throughout this discussion, that is really what we're talking about here, the transparency and coverage final rule, many of the provisions in the CAA and in other regulatory guidance is that the government is looking toward having more price transparency in the health field. What the hospital price transparency rules are all about is they require hospitals to post their prices online and make them available to the public. So the good news about the hospital price transparency rules is it doesn't require any work on the part of employers or your TPAs or your insurance companies. It's an obligation that falls on the hospitals. But the mandate was issued sort of in the same time frame as the TIC final rules, and so people get a little confused sometimes about how they all work together. Um, but the bottom line is the hospitals are required to post their prices online on their websites. I understand that many hospitals have not been in compliance, and the uh, regulators therefore decided to increase the potential penalties that could apply for non-compliance in, in order to encourage more hospitals to uh, uh do what the regulations mandate. Yeah, and I've been talking to uh, employees uh, of our of our employer clients and in an open enrollment meetings and so forth, and reminding them that these rules are in effect. And if you're using a hospital that isn't posting their prices, you might want to consider possibly looking at a couple of more hospitals. Uh, talk to your doctor, talk to your surgeon, whatever, and see if they can maybe take a look at some of the other hospitals. They probably have privileges at more than one, uh, and consider using those that are posting their their uh, their required information because when they aren't posting, that kind of tends to make me believe that it's because they don't want people to know what they're charging for certain services. That's, you know, I'm a little bit uh, leery of that and, and a little bit suspicious uh, when the providers don't uh, post it. But uh, yeah, it's something that we talk a lot about in, uh, in open enrollment meetings and so forth, just to make sure that the employees are aware that it's supposed to be there. Um, I just think that's something that, that they might want to think about. Agreed. So there are a lot more uh, deadlines for the CAA, uh, you know, regarding the No Surprises Act and transparency and so forth. Can you walk us through a few of the important deadlines? Certainly. So um, a number of deadlines under the CAA are already in effect. For example, for updated ID cards, changes in provider directory requirements, balanced billing disclosures, continuity of care, and mental health parity analyses some of these are uh, already in effect for all plans, and some of them went into effect as of the start of the plan year, beginning on January 1, 2022. A few more deadlines will be phased in in the next year or two, and the deadlines are typically tied to the plan year start date. 
One exception to that is there is an important deadline coming up for self-funded plans where they are going to have to report on pharmacy benefit and drug costs. So the obligation to file those reports starts this December 27th, um, and then plans will have to continue reporting every June 1 thereafter. Yeah, that's an important one, and a lot of people kind of forget about that, especially because it's the 1227. And just to let people know, that's because that is, what, two years after the signing date of the, the law? Wasn't it signed on, on December 27th of 2020? Is that correct? That is correct. That okay. is why they have that particular date. Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting one, an interesting deadline that people may forget about. Uh, so keep in mind that is because two years after the law was signed, that's why it's a little bit uh, a little bit different. And I think they also get confused because there is, um, under the TIC final rule, there is actually a public disclosure requirement, a machine-readable file requirement for pharmacy costs, and they have delayed that indefinitely. And so some people think that the CAA pharmacy reporting requirement has also been delayed, but it hasn't been. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up and mentioning that. Um, and I kind of forgot about that till you just mentioned it as well. I knew it when I look at my chart, because I had that nice little chart that you created <laughs> some time ago when we did these classes a while back, and we keep updating them with uh, all the delays and so forth. But I have to keep looking back at the chart to remember all these things myself. So I, I have the chart printed out and on my bulletin board in front of me. Yeah, and that's... Just to keep, a tr just to keep track of all the deadlines. Yeah, and that's, that's what I do too. So thank you. So we talked about this earlier, but let's come back to it. What is the impact? impact for grandfathered plans? Well, as we talked about, the TIC final rule, which was issued under the auspices of the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, doesn't actually apply to grandfathered plans. So the machine-readable file requirement doesn't apply to grandfathered plans. And similarly, the online self-service tool provisions within the TIC final rule don't apply to grandfathered plans. However, all of the provisions in the CAA do apply to grandfather plans. And as one example, the CAA also, like the TIC final rule, has an online self-service tool. So you still are going to have to comply with that online self-service tool, even if you're a grandfather plans by those 2023 and 2024 deadlines I talked about, not because of the TIC final rule, but because of the CAA. There are a few other provisions which um, under the CAA will now apply to grandfathered plans. Uh, for example, some of the new rules on emergency services and how to reimburse um, expenses when someone goes to an out-of-network emergency facility, those will now start to apply to grandfathered plans um, because of the CAA. And uh, there are a few other little tweaks here and there. So. Um, to sum up, that although the TIC final rule does not apply to grandfathered plans, the CAA does. So with regard to any provisions that overlap or that, uh, or that are uh, existing provisions that are replaced by the CAA, you are now going to have to be in compliance. Yeah, yes. Thank you for that. So let's talk a little bit about health plan ID cards. You mentioned those briefly a moment ago. There are new requirements for the No Surprises Act. What things need to be added to ID cards uh, with their renewal dates on or after January 1st of 2022? Well, the uh, big change is under the new rules, deductible and out-of-pocket maximums must be added to ID cards as well as contact information uh, such as a phone number or a website where people can get more information about the deductible and out-of-pocket limits. Um, they did not issue any regulations explaining how to implement this new ID card requirement, although they may in the future, but in the meantime, um, similar to a lot of these other CAA provisions we've been alluding to, they expect plans to go ahead and still comply, even if they haven't issued guidance, um, using a reasonable and good faith interpretation of the law. They've also indicated um, with regard to the ID cards specifically, uh, they have provided some uh, general guidance as to what they will be looking for um, with regard to the ID cards to be certain that people are in compliance. Thank you. And I know that uh, you and I were very busy uh, on this ID card <laughs> portion of this <laughs> earlier in the year, making sure the ID cards for our 
third-party administrators for our self-funded clients and so forth, making sure looking that at mock-ups. yeah, <laughs> looking at mock-ups, making sure it was all put in there properly. So thank you for your assistance on that as well. Uh, it's always nice to have an attorney to uh, ha- you know help me go over these things and make sure that uh, I haven't uh, forgotten anything or missed something in the in the regulations myself. So thank you for that. Um, let's uh, let's talk about the requirements for provider directories. What's now required related to provider directories? Well, there are multiple new requirements with regard to provider directories. I think all of us have been frustrated at different times where we wanted to go to uh, an in-network provider or facility only to find out that the provider directory for the plan was out of date. We couldn't find um, who was actually in the network and who wasn't in the network. So they passed new rules in the CAA uh, with regard to provider directories. And there's multiple parts to this. The first part is that plans basically have to update their provider directories every 90 days. They need to have a process where they can verify and update the provider directory every 90 days to ensure that they are accurately disclosing who is in network and who isn't, as well as to remove a provider or facility when that individual or the facility's status cannot be verified or has changed. Um, The database has to be updated within two business days of notice from a provider or facility of their change in status as um, a network provider. In addition to that verification process, there is also what they're calling a response protocol where um, the plan has to be able to respond to inquiries from participants via phone or electronically as soon as practicable, but no later than one business day after someone calls up and says, hey, can you refer me to an in-network provider? And then they must retain those communications about that um, conversation or communication with the employee for two years. They also have to have a database on a public website with a list of in-network provider and facilities. If they have a print directory, there's certain disclosures they have to make um, about the accuracy of the print directory. And then finally, if the plan provides you with inaccurate information, they tell you that Dr. Smith is in network and it turns out Dr. Smith is out of network, then the plan can only charge you in network co-pays, co-insurance, etc. Um, if you go ahead and visit Dr. Smith based on their incorrect information. Yeah, and the reality is there aren't a whole lot of printed directories anymore anyways, <laughs> right? I mean, pretty much true, everything's true. done online now. So can you just can you just verify for people that this also applies when they have electronic-only provider directories? Yes, so this these new requirements prov- uh, apply whether you have a print directory or an electronic directory. They just actually added an additional uh, disclosure requirement if you happen to have a print directory where you have to put basically a disclaimer on the print directory. So let's start with some pretty basic, not too difficult to do items for employers. The No Surprises Act requires a new notice. Can you tell everyone when employers need to start distributing that notice? Yes, there is a new disclosure requirement regarding um, limitations created by the CAA on balance billing. And that disclosure must be made starting January 1, 2022 for plan years with a start date beginning on or after January 1, 2022. So if you have a calendar year plan, you were supposed to start providing that notice as of January 1, 2022. If you've got a October 1 start date for your plan year, you have until October 1, 2022 to start disclosing that notice. Thank you. And what are some other action items for employers under the CAA and No Surprises Act? There are a number of action items under the CAA, particularly the No Surprises Act section of the CAA that employers need to be aware of. Some of these are already in effect and some of these will be going into effect. So many of them are tied to uh, the employer's plan here. So for example, um, the provisions on ID cards, provider directories, balance billing disclosures, the limitation on surprise billing, and continuity of care, those all go into effect as of the first day of your plan year beginning on or after January 1, 2022. So if you have um, a calendar year plan, those provisions are already in effect for you. If your plan year starts, for example, on October 1 or December 1, you have a couple more months before you have to comply. 
There are some other provisions of the CAA which are already in effect um, that are not directly tied to the plan year, such as the limitation on gag clauses and the mental health parity analyses. Um, and then there are a few more that will be going into effect a little later in the year. For example, the reporting on pharmacy benefits and drug costs that goes into effect on December 27th, 2022, um, as well as um, the uh, provisions on the self-compliance tool, which goes into effect um, in 2023 and 2024. Those self-compliance tool deadlines are tied to your planned year. Okay, thank you. Uh, providers are required to provide good faith estimates. Can you tell us briefly what they're required to provide and when? This is another transparency uh, requirement that is built into the CAA, and it's all focused on helping people who need healthcare become better consumers. So under this provision, what it will allow you to do is to go into your doctor, uh, for example, or to a facility and say, I need to have laser surgery, I need to have an MRI, I need to have a mole removed, those kinds of procedures, and to say, please provide me with a good faith estimate of what it's going to cost me. And the provider or the facility will then provide you with a good faith estimate that will include costs and billing codes. And then you can take that good faith estimate to your health plan and say, this is what uh, my provider estimates uh, it's going to cost me. Can you run it through your claims processes and let me know what it's going to cost me out of pocket if I have these procedures performed by this particular provider? And that way you can make um, an informed decision as to if I get this laser surgery, what it's going to cost me. Um, and you can have that information up front and make um, a uh um, an informed decision about whether or not to go forward with that treatment. Now, interestingly, with regard to the good faith estimates by providers and facilities, it has been placed on hold for individuals who are covered by group health plans. Um, it has not been placed on hold for uninsured individuals, but it has temporarily been placed on hold if you have a group health plan. So it's not something you can take advantage of if you're covered by a health plan immediately, um, but it will be a tool that will be available to you in the future. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really good thing for people to see that up front, just like they do with dental. We've done that, you know, historically. They could get a, an estimate of their dental work before. It's kind of a nice thing to know that they can, in the very near future, receive the same type of information on medical expenses, which are a lot greater, of course, than dental expenses. So I think that's a move in the right direction for sure. I agree with that. I think anything that will help individuals make a better and more informed decision about their health care is to everyone's advantage. No one is happy to get a surprise bill from their doctor or their facility that they weren't expecting and haven't budgeted for. Right. Well, there's also a requirement for advanced EOBs. Can you explain how this works a little bit and who does this impact? Well, I alluded to that a minute ago. How it works is when you get that advanced uh, price estimate from your provider or your facility, then you take it to your plan and you have the plan translated into what it will actually mean out of cost to you once the plan pays its portion. And that report that the plan provides you with your uh, bottom line cost is the what they call the advanced explanation of benefits. Okay, great. Thank you. A lot of people weren't quite sure of what that is, and I'm explaining it to people all the time, so I'm glad you did a, a, such a nice job of explaining it. <laughs> uh, I know that the No Surprises Act has a, a lot of new information contained within it. Can you give us a very quick, simple overview of what the No Surprises Act is supposed to accomplish? Well, there are various elements of the No Surprises Act, and the um, biggest part of it um, from the public perspective are the limitations on balance billing. And what this is all about is it has to do with transparency and helping us all be better consumers of healthcare. So there are very distinct parts of the uh, surprise billing rules or the no surprise billing rules. The first has to do with emergency services. And so if you are in a situation where you go to an emergency room and it turns out that the emergency facility is out of network, under these rules, you will only have to pay in-network prices for receiving treatment at an out-of-network ER. 
The second part of it has to do with non-emergency services at an in-network facility. Now, if you go to an in-network facility and they have some out-of-network providers, there is a process through which those out-of-network providers can ask you to consent in advance to paying out-of-network rates, but they have to jump through a number of hoops before that can happen, and you do have to actually consent to paying the out-of-network rates. Now, interestingly, there's another provision in the No Surprises Act that says for certain ancillary services, and they, and I will define that in a minute, that consent process doesn't apply. So for these ancillary services, you only can be asked to pay in-network rates, even if the provider of the ancillary services is out of network, so long as you are at an in-network facility. And so that ancillary care includes emergency medicine, anesthesiology, pathology, radiology, neonatology, assistant surgeons, and certain other diagnostic services. You can probably tell, um, and Dorothy, you can back this up, but, uh, from, but you could probably tell from that list of ancillary services, these are some of the areas where people in the past have most often received balanced bills after going to an in-network facility, and so they addressed that. There is one last requirement to mention, and that has to do with air ambulance services. If your plan covers air ambulance services and you go to an out-of-network provider uh, for the air ambulance service, um, the uh, out-of-network air ambulance service can only charge you in-network rates. Okay, well, there's one thing that I want to ask you as a follow-up question to uh, what you just talked about. You mentioned the provider consent process. Uh, do you have any fear? Because I know I do, and I've already started to see it happen. But what are your thoughts on providers? You know, they have to have written consent, basically, to balance bill someone under this under these new provisions. Do you have any fear at all that they will just start putting these notices in the middle of a huge stack of uh, pre-admission paperwork and just say, sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here, and not mention to these individuals that there's a consent that you're signing in there, which basically gives us the right to balance bill you? Do you have any concerns about that? And have you seen that yet? I do have concerns about that. I have not seen it yet. Um, it hasn't trickled down to me if anyone is doing that. Um, they have uh, put some processes in the regulations um, to try to um, limit the ability of plans to uh, bury some of these consents in um, the, the paperwork so that people don't know um, what they're signing or might feel pressured because <laughs> they're sitting there at the uh, reception desk yeah. at the hospital. And they're saying, we're not going to treat you. Yeah, we're not going <laughs> to treat you unless you, until you sign all this paperwork. Sign here, sign here, sign here. Yeah. So um, I think the two things to look at in that in such a circumstance is to uh, know and understand what the rules are about what they can request and how they can request it and make certain that they are satisfying those requirements. And then I think the other point is uh, educating your participants. Um, maybe this is something we should be talking about at open enrollment meetings even. Um, understand that you do not necessarily have to consent uh, just because they've asked you to consent and that they have to follow certain rules. They cannot hand you this consent form while you're on the gurney being rolled in. Um, and, uh, you know, um, how closely are they uh, cutting it when they design these consent processes like you described, Dorothy, so that they bury it in the... Um, package of materials that you're handed um, when you check in at the hospital um, and do the, the processes they've developed follow all the rules. Um, right, right. Well, I actually have seen a couple of these so far. So just so you know, they are starting to, uh, we are starting to see them from providers and, and people are bringing them to our attention. And the reason they're bringing them to our attention and showing us and telling us about it is because I'm so glad you mentioned how important education is because one of the things, as you know, we create videos for um, all sorts of things uh, to allow our clients and all of their employees um, to view on our website or on their own websites or on their you know, payroll systems website or wherever they put all their information. We create videos on every type of subject we could think of that would help the employees. Uh, and so what I did was at the beginning of 2022, when all this was going into effect, I actually created a video uh, just on the No Surprises Act, which includes, oh, actually it covers the No Surprises Act and the transparency and coverage. And I go into great detail and actually share with them in the video uh, 
uh, the language that has to be included in that uh, form and that authorization that, that people would be signing. Or, or basically, I'm allowing you to uh, balance bill me. So I'm actually walking them through that. So I'm glad that you brought up the education. Um, I do think it's important that you cover it uh, with open enrollments. It's, as I said, we've been doing that with each of our renewals in 2022 as people go through the uh, open enrollment process. So I, I, I can't agree with you more that education is very, very important. Know your rights. Yes, know your and, rights. And the and it's um, to the advantage of the employer to make certain that their participants uh, know um, what their rights are because it will make them happier with their benefits. And um, uh, we don't want our employees struggling with balanced bills that they you know they're going to have difficulty. Yeah. And, uh, pain. Yeah. And as I said, we do a lot of these videos. We do them for, on every type of topic we can think of that might help the employees and the employers. But I have to tell you that our clients have been the happiest with this video than they have been with any others because we actually do. I actually do go through the actual language that's in that gives them something to look for. And I actually quote the CMS information and say, this is what I got directly from the CMS website talking about what your rights are and so forth. Um, and that you're not required to sign this form and so on and so forth. So out of all the videos that I've done, and I've done a lot uh, to educate employees, this one I've had the most positive feedback on because it has a direct impact uh, on their financial position if uh, someone's balance billed. So yeah, I think that's very important. So thank you again for bringing that up. Uh, if you've got a fully insured plan, there may also be state laws that apply. For example, California has had uh, limits on these consent procedures for a couple of years now. So that is another line of protection that you have if you've got a fully insured plan. That's that's correct. Thank you very much for bringing that up. And I forgot to even mention that. So thank you. And I do talk about it that even in our video, we say whether you're fully insured or self-funded, you know, and so forth. And I kind of break it down. But um, thank you for that distinction. Um, there's another portion of this that's very important. I know you and I have talked about it a lot in webinars in the past and, and also in podcasts and so forth. A very complicated process, the independent dispute resolution process. And this alone could take an hour to explain, but very <laughs> simply, as you know, this is this was my baby last year, about this time last year, uh, and as they were starting to roll out the independent dispute resolution process. But very simply, what does this process entail? The way this works with limitations on surprise billing is that participant will go to, for example, an out-of-network emergency room, or they'll go to an in-network facility with an out-of-network provider, and the participant will only be billed the in-network rate. But that leaves open the question of how much does the plan have to pay the out-of-network provider or facility in such a case? They don't have a contract through which they've agreed that they're going to pay X amount of dollars for a particular service. So that has to be determined. The way that's going to be determined is through the independent dispute resolution process. So um, under the no surprises uh, rules um, under the CAA, um, a participant will only be billed their in-network copay or co-insurance or deductible amount if they for example, go to an out-of-network emergency room or go to an in-network facility with an out-of-network provider. But then the facility and the provider will then have to work out with the health plan how much the facility or provider will get reimbursed by the facility or the health plan. The independent dispute resolution process does not involve the participants. The participants will not even know this is going on. It's all behind the scenes. And it's basically the negotiation process that goes on between the out-of-network facility or provider and the plan. So the out-of-network facility or provider will provide um, a bill to the plan. The plan will process that bill and pay a certain amount um, that they believe is the appropriate amount for the services that were provided. If the out-of-network provider or facility isn't satisfied with the amount that they've been paid by the plan, that's when the independent dispute resolution process gets instituted. Yes, thank you for that explanation. And just as an FYI, for those that may not be aware, last year we did a lot of uh, podcasts and articles and so forth on all of these No Surprises Act uh, topics. Uh, I had a very detailed podcast with uh, Ryan Work and Chris Condalucci of the Self-Insurance Institute of America, where we talked about the independent dispute resolution process. So if you're interested and want to hear more about that, you can 
check out our podcast, go to last year's season three, and there is a podcast uh, specifically on this topic. As I said, you can talk an hour just on this topic alone uh, or longer. Uh, for people like Chris and Ryan and I, we could have gone on for three hours on this at least. But um, yeah, if you want more information on that, uh, check last year's uh, podcast uh, list and, and, and go ahead and, and take a listen to that. Well, that's unfortunately all that we have time for today, but Marilyn has promised to return next week for part two of federal and state legislative and regulatory updates. Thank you, Marilyn, so much for being with us for part one today. My pleasure, Dorothy, and I'm looking forward to part two. Great. And if anybody wants to reach out to you, how will they do that? Well, you can reach out to me via phone, 310-989-0993, or via email. And my email address is marilyn at monahanlawoffice.com. Easy enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> and for everybody else out there, please be sure to tune into part two next week. And we're going to be covering a lot of good things. We're going to be talking about the all-important Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization Supreme Court case, which, of course, overturned Roe versus Wade. I know that's emotional and uh, controversial to some extent, but we will be digging into some of the details on that. And we'll be talking about the Marietta versus DeVita and the Medicare secondary payer rules Supreme Court decision uh, and how that was a victory for the self-funded industry, particularly in ERISA plans. We'll also talk about some ACA updates as time permits and some COVID-19 guidance and public health emergency uh, updates, um, things like cafeteria plans and so forth. And if we have time, we'll also get into a little bit of the California updates. Again, we're not going to have time to get into all this in a great amount of detail, but we do want to touch on some of these topics. Uh, There's going to be so much that we're going to be covering next week, so please tune in for that. And in the meantime, you can register for our in-depth lunch and learn program as I mentioned before that's 10 a.m. to 2.15 Pacific time on September 21st for our in-person and I'm really looking forward to this live seminar in person in Orange County California on September 21st at the Holiday Inn Orange County Airport or you can register live stream uh, via Zoom webinar so we're excited about that we're going you know high tech and everything having the live stream going on (laughs) so to register you can go to advancedbenefitconsulting.com and listeners can register using the discount code that's provided in the show notes for both the in-person and Zoom webinar attendance. So please take a look at the show notes because we will be posting the discount codes for both, again, the in-person attendance and the Zoom uh, webinar attendance as well. So Marilyn, thanks again. Thank you, Dorothy. It has been my pleasure. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3 toll-free at 866-658-3835, or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.